Hello and welcome to a special second birthday episode of The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about how we talk to people different from ourselves. Every episode, I speak to someone who's involved in the public conversation in some way, from archbishops to artists, comedians to journalists, politicians to poets. And I ask them what they hold sacred, what has formed them, and what have they learnt about engaging with people that they disagree with. This week, though, somewhat against my better judgment, we have turned the tables and a former guest has come in to interview me. I realise I've been asking people to be vulnerable and personal and self-reflective for two whole years, so it felt a little bit hypocritical not to reveal something of myself. We're therefore really grateful to Ian Dunt, whose episode is still one of our most listened, for coming in to put me in a really uncomfortable position of having to answer my own questions. Ian is a British journalist and editor of the political news website, politics.co.uk. Before we get to the episode, I'd love to ask if you would give the team here a tiny little advent gift by rating and reviewing the podcast so more people can hear it. If you have a favourite episode, why not share it with someone who you think will be interested? We're also going to be taking a little break over Christmas, so this will be our last episode for about a month. And we'll be back in the new year with our interview with Danny Finkelstein and our re-recorded episode with Richard Ayoade and Lydia Fox, which I know lots of you have been looking forward to. So I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. Uh, So, Liz, I don't know if you've ever given this question any thought, but what are your sacred values? (laughs) Thanks, Ian. Um, I have given it some thought. I have given it less thought than you might imagine, uh, in that I'm really interested in what other people think. I never know the answers to my questions, so who knows how this interview is going to go. I do have have an instinct about it, which is something around relationships. And as I speak, I realise how hard it is to talk about your sacred value without sounding deeply earnest. and this is going to be a good learning experience. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. This is uncomfortable. Um, I, yeah, I, I think it's about relationships. Uh, I recorded a conversation with Rich Diawadi and Lydia Fox earlier today. And what he said really stuck with me is that you don't know what your sacred value was until you die. Basically, hmm. you should be able to look at someone's life and know what it was. But we're such strangers to ourselves that we can't actually know what we're holding sacred or what's driving our behavior and that's kind of what academics would say that you really know what's sacred when it's really under pressure so Mm. i what i hope my sacred value is and i attempt to live my life around badly and with lashings of hypocrisy (laughs) is uh is is that sense of human to human encounter as the so there's a booba quote that's sort of written in my journal a million times which is all living is meeting Mm. and when I became a Christian, it was all very confusing. But the bit of the Bible that really stuck with me is love God and love people. Christianity is about loving God and loving people. And the times in life where I feel that, ugh, like something feels sacrilegious, something feels wrong, like my conscience kicks in or my sense of disgust, that ick factor kicks in, are when I see human beings being treated like objects or like they and them language. Um, when I treat someone like an object or just a service provider or a someone to facilitate my life rather than the kind of world of meaning that individuals are. And so if I can really have human encounter as far as possible within the kind of emotional and psychological and financial bandwidth that everyone has, if I can try and have as many of those, what Booba would call I-thou moments, not I-it moments, that is what I think a good life is and the, when society is 
forming us in ways that makes that more difficult or encouraging us not to do that mm. to see each other as fully human it sounds so cheesy but that is that that is that's my honest answer that's the thing i was i was, I was busy empathizing with it quite quite strongly when, when is it hardest for you so it feels like it's a really tribalizing moment right so we both spend too much time on Twitter. <laughs> I know that. <laughs> Any amount of time. Is when too I'm much. on there, you're on there usually. Um, <laughs> procrastinating something. And I can find if I switch off after a day of trying, you know, pretending I'm being productive on Twitter by keeping across current events or whatever it is, that they, them language really kicks in. Mm. And whatever tribe it's about or whatever kind of position on gender or bit of the church. I can get really sort of sneery and dismissive and judgmental. And it's particularly if I've not met any individual who who represents, in air quotes, that particular group in a real, like, in the flesh human setting recently, that group sort of hardens into a blob of people who I'm seeing as an it. Um, so I do think social media is hard for that. And I also find, I find the balance of it really hard as a leader of an organisation. So my team would tell you I am possibly infuriating to work for because I overthink all of this. I'm like, I want us to be humans. Come on, I vow moments in the office, but also where's that report? You're late, <laughs> you know, or that sense in which the power dynamic, society is a, is a kind of machine of power and status, right? In some ways, one way of looking at it. If it's not, and, and relationships are power-based and sometimes they're healthy power-based relationships, sometimes they're unhealthy, but organizations even in the ever so nice fluffy charity sector and even in the supposedly even nicer charity christian sector you need to get stuff done there's lines of reporting there's only so much money there's only so much time there's stakeholders and you know finance reports and charity commission guidelines and all these things which are good and right and normal but can sort of obscure the fact that you're a bunch of complicated vulnerable human beings trying to have relationships with each other mm. And so when I have to make hard decisions based on financial realities or strategic realities that are not exactly what the one of the human beings who works with me would like, that sense of how do you hold that relationship of really seeing each other, even though I'm going to have to tell you something that is hard, or even just in performance. or So the, tenden the tendency to fall into the way the corporate world tells us to be together in organisations, which is basically I-it encounters, there's a very functional, transactional, I am paying you to deliver this thing, or you are my boss and you need to give me this, or you're my organization, you have responsibility for me in this way. It's really, um, it feels really risky to be attempting to do that in an, org in an organization. It feels like maybe asking a bit too much of people's emotional energy and vulnerability, and I still don't know if it's the right thing. Sometimes I worry that we're going to turn into one of those terrible culty places where there's like mass meditation and sharing sessions about childhood trauma and everyone wants to stab out their eyes. Um, you know, but that's where it is real. For the moment, that's where it's a real crunch point for me. How do you lead a group of people in properly honest human ways and get stuff done? Like call people when they're, you know, when they're not performing, put the best foot forward to the world as far as possible. You know, all of those things like, they're not commercial realities because we're in the charity said, but essentially kind of commercial reality meets Boober's theology of the person. And I haven't quite managed to square them. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I really hope you put this on job vacancy adverts in the future. I think that'll yeah. be very effective. Hire me if you want someone who will overthink <laughs> your role everything. in our organisation. <laughs> um, so when did you when did you have your moment? You said that you had a moment of faith, right? So I presume that you weren't always you weren't brought up in a Christian household. I mean, in a very broadly, classically sort of British, like my mum's family were functionally atheist and definitely not religious and didn't have any connection with church um my dad's family sent him to boarding school and so he'd been to chapel so was like vaguely like not hostile in that bizarre way we do in this country of like the deep metaphysics being background noise mm-hmm. um <laughs> so i still find strange um but no no visible or noticeable kind of piety in the home brief foray into sunday school which was free childcare for my parents. So they'd go home and I think have sex. That's what that was for. Um, one time <laughs> in the week where they you know, could see each other. Um, and w- was very much like, this is old ladies. I don't want to color in Noah, Zark again. This mm. is nonsense. I was like annoying Hermione. Get me out of this ridiculous, irrational, excruciatingly boring situation. Age eight. Um, but... Then uh, several years later, was kind of bouncing around um, groups of friends and a friend invited me to her youth group and I uh, encountered some people that weren't old ladies with, I remember the woman from Sunday school had one of those, you could see huge swathes of scalp. <laughs> and I never knew if it was a wig or, and now I realise it's a deeply ageist reaction, even as I say it, but Literally, the thing I remember is Noah's Ark colouring sheets and scalp, shiny scalp, being distressing and distracting. Um, But then this other youth group, when I was about 15, they were, and again, shallow. They were younger, you know, they were, they spoke normal language and they were full of something that I wanted. Um, And they were very patient with all of my questions and I would come with my like, well, what about other religions? What about homosexuality? What about uh, the Big Bang? I didn't know anything about the Big Bang. I did single science, but I'd somehow picked up that there was like, there was a science problem with religion. I mean, literally knew nothing, but I was like, well, what about science? (laughs) Having argued my way into being the one person to do single science GCSE at my school. Um, And they answered the questions they could answer, although to be honest, there weren't that many that were particularly salient to them at that point. And pointed me to some books and then took me to a festival. And I had a, we've talked about this, I think, before. I had what my friends who were into psychedelics recognize more than, (laughs) it's really funny. I have friends who are charismatic Christians and friends who are into psychedelics. And then everyone else I know who doesn't get it when I talk about it, but a very powerful sense of the, I prayed, I spent a week kind of resisting the nonsense and going to the skate park. And then on the last night, I prayed, God, if you're real, show me and had a uh, sort of 45 minute flat out on the floor. It's funny because it's so long ago now and I've told the story. And there's that thing with memory that you're like, do I remember or do we just remember the telling of it? And my life pivots on it. And I wish I could feel my way back into it. But anyway, I remember the, 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 it was like a converted cow shed. So it's concrete floor kind of corrugated iron and these horrible plastic chairs and I just lay on this cold rough concrete floor and had a very 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 powerful conviction of God's love and presence and power and then 
that was it really so that was the moment that i was like all right god <sighs> fine i get it you're, you're real what are we gonna do <laughs> um okay i mean that's an extraordinary story by the way what, what have been the moment what have been the moments since then where your faith has been most tested <sighs> i'm just trying to lots <laughs> lots of times um so i uh i dated a non-christian for a long time all through university and that was just emotionally hard because I loved him and he loved me and I, he, we were going to get married. He, I wanted to love him as he was and not need him to be a Christian. And he didn't want to be in competition with God. And then the thing that he'd feared all along happened, which was that God won. And I was like, I can't. If we have kids and one of them gets sick, I want to be able to pray with my husband. That was the like... I don't want to be in a hospital ward with someone who won't pray with me. It's a little bit tiff. I haven't thought about it for years. Um, but there was that sense then of actually there is that even people that you love very dearly in some ways on the other side of a river or yeah. the deep, the deep difference of being able of that having had that experience or being able to think yourself into that place or cognitively making sense of God it sometimes feels like some people just can and some people just can't and you crossing that divide is quite rare and quite and hard and so that that was a little bit of a battle like which of these loves is going to win um and then i sort of broke up with him that was all dreadful but resolved eventually and then i went to work at the bbc and i worked in radio drama and um got a job in Manchester working on a programme about the Bible, which eventually, it's a much benighted programme, but at the time was a really big, exciting, it was going to be a six-part dramatisation of the whole Bible in kind of docudrama, but like high-end visuals. And I got a job as a researcher. I still don't quite know how, because all I'd done is work in radio drama, like running errands, basically. But I was like, I'm a Christian. I like drama. <laughs> big fan of the Bible. <laughs> Um, and moved to Manchester where I knew no one and it rained solidly. Um, I came to love Manchester, but when I first moved there, it just was not a happy place. Uh, knew no one. So I had to like ask out people to be my friends and then, um, started working on this program. And the, the research team were mainly Oxford and Cambridge theology graduates who had either not been Christians when they went to study theology at Oxbridge or definitely weren't by the end of it because some theology courses have... Some academics, I think, really, that's what they're there for, but not all. Hmm. Um, and so I was this kind of like shiny-faced, naive evangelical who kind of bounced in to the research team and quickly... <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I really... I mean, some of them were friends for years. I don't think anyone intentionally went, let's just put a target on her back. But there was very much like, no, she'll see. They're like, why don't you study judge Judges and Joshua? Just, you know, what, so what you're going to do for three months is you're going to ring academics and get them to talk to you about Judges and Joshua. Just write some briefing notes about those whole, and if, <laughs> lots of people won't know this, but there are two books in the Hebrew Bible. That's definitely a low, it's definitely one of the, the low points in terms of, you know, it's great drama, would have made amazing television, but it's, you know, mm -hmm. the Israelites take the land of Canaan. One way of reading it is there's a bit of a genocide um, of the Canaanites. Um, there's also lots of questions about the historical record and whether it actually happened. And Judges is just brutal, brutal, brutal. And 
I hadn't ever done any of the intellect. I had become a Christian in a very emotional way. It was a very emotional, immediate, I, I speak in tongues, I still do. I feel a very strong emotional connection with God. But the fact that I was also a sort of geeky Hermione type hadn't ever connected with it. And so I had asked none of these questions. I'd ask, where did the Bible come from? Who wrote it? How should we read it? How much of it is literal? Is it supposed to be history? Is it supposed to be story? You know, what is the character of God that we're seeing in these pages? How does it connect with the New Testament? None of those things. Um, and so I, about three weeks in, I was like, oh, oh crap. I have built my whole life on a bunch of nonsense. Like I've moved to a city where I know no one. I can't even join a church. I don't think I believe any of this anymore. And was very angry and very lonely. And uh, yeah, tried to be an atheist for probably six months maximum drunk a lot had a lot of fun like well you know i still drink and did previously so it's not like alcohol was banned but there was a definite sense of existential chasm opening up underneath me and listened to a lot of very good but very dark music and um got my heart broken by someone anyway uh sorry very long story that that was a that was a real crunch point for me because i I needed to have thought through my emotional experience of God. And I eventually found some very smart Christians who had asked all those questions and were like, don't panic, it's all right. <laughs> and, you know, gave me some books and helped that intellectual part of myself explore the fact that there are lots and lots and lots of people in, over the centuries and now who think they're a you know, good, reasonable intellectual case for believing some of this stuff and invited me into community. And, uh, and I found my way back or whatever it is. I found a form of Christianity that could support my weight again, I think. It's like you went through one testing of the heart and one testing of the head, basically. Oh, what a lovely way of summarising oh, it. So Thank you for narrating my life so beautifully. I might put on my SEO. <laughs> yes, yeah. Huh. Yeah. And what are the times where you feel your faith is most affirmed? It's the hardest thing to talk about. It's in worship. It's in poetry. It's in the deep, the deep goodness of people and it's funny it's like a, it's like a kaleidoscope <laughs> and it everyone's looking at the world and sort of twisting and sometimes the patterns look random and sometimes they just fall into place and there's meaning there's meaningness Ugh, there's meaning um and the longer i do this job actually the longer i think about what a good society is how we narrate human value what is a just way of engaging as people. I kind of, ha it's almost like an emotional conversion and then an intellectual conversion. And so on the days where I feel, it's so weird using this language with you, Ian, but when I feel the Holy Spirit, I feel that sense of like the hairs on my arms standing up, the still small voice of God, the sort of strong sense of presence that I can't shake off. That's when I feel strong in my faith. And then, Sometimes I don't, I have periods where I don't feel that at all, but then I look at what the offer is and the way Christian, the intellectual basis of Christianity says something about who we should value and how we should live and the last being first and the, there being justice as a logic of the world, despite, you know, despite suffering, suffering is the only real apologetics question, I think, the way the cross holds together despair and hope, they're just like a psychological realism to it, the the shame in the Garden of Eden, that sense of which human, dis human disconnection happens when we turn away from God. And you see I-it moments when the Adam and Eve start 
pointing fingers at each other, then they point fingers at everyone else. And that human disconnection just spreads like a virus. And <laughs> again, huge hypocrisy, institutional problems. The church is a very bad, uh, at times, sign of this. But in glimpses, I see the church being a sign or a symbol, a kind of semiotic hint of reconnection between people as a pointer to God. I think that's when. Hmm. Um, when you, I mean, you left the BBC for yours, which is a interesting career move uh, what was it that prompted that yeah yeah so um <laughs> we're just trying to get away from the atheist theologians <laughs> no bless them um so in some ways it's a it's a it's a story in economic precarity in that i i was never given a permanent contract at the bbc so i'd been on three-month contract six-month contract and the bbc did that thing where they'd like give me a two-week break between contracts in order not to have mm. me accidentally become a permanent Dreadful. staff member which is another you know another thing about kind of just institutions and relationships but um i loved it i loved the bbc like now when its reputation feels tarnished in all kinds of places, I feel it like a personal mm -hmm. slight because I can see that there's loads of ballsing up going on. There's loads of panic and, you know, shortcutting. But my experience of the institution was of deeply decent, decent people trying to do the right thing and really smart people wanting to talk about ideas, which was just like heaven. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I absolutely loved it, but I'd gone into it out of this sense of, I did history and English at, York and loads of drama and there was this sense of like there's an engine of culture there's a story or stories that culture is telling about itself and it shapes us it shapes our worldview it shapes how we live it shapes our decisions it shapes who we love it shapes how we value it makes I vow moments with other people and with God more likely or less likely so in that classic 21 year old <laughs> like grandiose I'm going to change the world thing I was like how can I shape the stories of culture for the better I know I'll go and work at the BBC so I started in drama because drama was an affinity and I loved it but then I ended up working uh, on programs like The Moral Maze which again fascinating intellectual puzzle every week like here's a topic know everything about it find four people who can talk about it well work out how their arguments fit together write briefing notes like it, being the research on the moral maze is super fun if you're nerdy and deeply frustrating because it is like a microcosm of everything that's wrong with the way we talk about deep things in public and yeah, adversarial and adversarial uh, we would literally draw a grid and be like right we need someone who is this we need someone who is this we need someone who is this and it gets to the point there's like we need a shepherd with one leg who's trans and also libertarian <laughs> and we you know we've got that person so we need to balance them with that person that person makes that argument best but they don't fit our grid mm. or that person makes that argument but it's too nuanced the amount of people had to stand down because they were too nuanced mm. like and I was like oh, the frustration of being like these are our di this, this is amazing to have 45 minutes on mainstream public radio talking about our deepest ethical problems like how do we live together well how do we have a good life what is justice it's just fabulous that it exists and, you know, I still know the production team and they're doing their absolute best with it. But it reflects that sense of you can only have a conversation if you've got clear boundaries or someone, you know this, when you're looking for someone, you want a personality, you want someone who's good value, you mm. want someone who knows what they think. Whereas I, the older I get, the more I think the people I want to spend time with are 
don't always know what they think. And in that mystery and that openness and the ability to hold complexity in their heads, that's where wisdom is. And we are profiling and platforming people with no space for mystery and complexity. And so I was working on that and doing a part-time master's in theology and the arts and just got more and more like, I don't think this production route is for me. So I just got my first commission for a program on Radio 3 about beauty and theology. And I was kind of researcher slash assistant producer. And if I'd sort of gone down that road, I would have been able to be a producer. Eventually, they might have given me a permanent job. I would have been producing programs on Radio 4. I mean, brilliant, dream job, absolutely fascinating. But the levers that you can pull in that job to actually shape the story are just much shorter than I thought they were. <laughs> like, mm. You need a news hook. You need a big personality. You can't just talk about Kierkegaard, not that you probably should, but you can't just talk about mercy. You know, mm. something needs to happen. Someone needs to write a book. You need a reason. It has to be topical. Everything has to be topical. And I'm like, mercy is always topical. But, you know, <laughs> and that sense of like, I don't think, I think I'm going to get more and more frustrated trying to make meaningful programs in a space with not as much space for meaning. And so I thought about going into academia and then I realised academia is even more of a bin fire than the media. Um, and then this job came up and I thought, one, I get to run something, which when you're 27 and have never run a budget or a person, it's just terrifying and cool. <laughs> Power. Um, or, you know, growth. Um, and two, I was like, it's right in my area. Maybe one day I'll get to come back in and be on the other side of the glass and be someone who can make a good argument in a careful and nuanced way. I mean, it strikes me that it's the podcast is almost weaponized to respond precisely to what you consider sacred, which is basically face-to-face -face contact across generally tribal lines to try yeah. and establish sort of similarities and differences. It's, it feels tailor-made for you. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, you made it, so yeah, I, that's I, not surprising. Yeah, it's made for me, yeah. but it was far less uh, thought out or intentional mm -hmm. than that. Hussein, who was our initial producer who's still involved, was working with us at the time. Um, and we just sat down and were like, be good to do a podcast. The previous Theos podcast had been quite like, here's a Theos report. And understandably, <laughs> had to get, you know, four people listening to it. And so we're like, what would be interesting? People are interesting. And also we, we exist to get out of a religious bubble and out of religious boxes and talking to non-religious people because you're genuinely curious about them is one way to do that. Mm. I mean, obviously, I, I never bring up political subjects. No. It's completely unlike me. But it does feel like it's a very, like, like there is something meaningfully, something meaningful in a political way of simply saying that people can have conversations across tribal lines at the moment. Yeah, it is. And political, theological, philosophical and the thing is, just saying it, it's, it, it's the bumper sticker thing of like, oh, just, you know, talk to people you disagree with. It's lovely. You know, follow people you disagree with on Twitter. It's all very hard. <laughs> like we live in a, a, a conflictogenic environment, right? The way information technology is going, the way political campaigning is going, the way almost everything is going is forming us in ways. And this is why it's a difficult moment for democracy, forming us in ways that encourage us into they and them thinking and I, it encounters. And, but just making an argument for that is, it's, it sounds naive. And there is often the strong and understandable kind of responses, but they, but they, but truth, but justice, you know, but there's, there's always a good reason for that 
kind of tribal approach, that sense that it will be all right if we win. Like the end justifies the means. If we win, we can bring justice. If we win, win we can defend freedom. There's always a good reason to be tribal. And just saying we shouldn't sounds nice and safe and there's no grip to it, you know? And so rather than just trying to sound pious, and because I know it's difficult, I'm just trying to model it. I'm trying to go right. When Jesus said, turn the other cheek, what did he mean? When he said, love your enemy, what did he mean? When he said, stop taking yourself so seriously, what did he mean? When he said, don't judge, do not judge. Like, that's their story. It's between me and them. Work on your own stuff. What did he mean? Can I do that? It's really hard. It's really annoying. It's much nicer just to hang around with people just like yourself. It's much safer. <laughs> Makes you feel much more important. <laughs> um, but... Like unless we model it, unless it feels to me like habits and practices. Parker Palmer, who's a Quaker political philosopher in the States, talk about habits of the heart drawing on de Tocqueville. Like democracy requires us knowing how to do this. And there are very few places where it's being encouraged. We are encouraged to be cross. We're encouraged to be critical. We're encouraged to call people out. We're encouraged to um, tear people down. And probably sometimes that's the right thing to do. But as a default, it's a terrible thing. Mm. When is it hardest for you on this podcast specifically? Like, what are the? I'm not going to. say... I mean, my temptation because I'm a journalist being like, what names. was your worst guess? Who did you hate? <laughs> I know, I know, but I'm obviously too diplomatic host for you to do that. Yeah. So, what what have been the sort of things that have been said where it's hardest for you, where you feel yourself sort of simmer most? It's hardest for you to, yeah. to do the role that you're taking on here. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think it's actually it's the people that are closer to me. So someone like you or Tom Chivers, Tom is probably the furthest away from me metaphysically of anyone I've ever met. His like extreme, <laughs> extreme atheism, extreme uh, physicalism and kind of genetic determinism. For someone so lovely and affable, very bleak mm. view of the world and human nature. <laughs> but because it's so different, it's, it's a bit like being an anthropologist or an ethnoph ethnographer. It's like, oh, wow, interesting. Tell me how that feels. Hmm. Um, it's people who are... So James Carey, I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying this. Um, we, had, we had a conversation because he is a Christian. He's someone who I've known and off over the years. Um, politically very conservative, which is I don't find difficult to deal with. Very conservative on gender. And so doesn't believe in women priests. Um, and that, when it, and this is why it's so hard to ask people from kind of minority groups to kind of keep their temper when they're engaging on mm -hmm. stuff around their identity. Because I was like, going to that conversation, I don't know if you even think I should be leading this organization. Mm. Like, I don't know if my very calling is invalid to you. And I like him and respect him. And he's the most kind of thoughtful, open person of that position that you could hope for but like making myself raise that and be like James just so you know this is quite hard for me because I feel judged by you can we talk about that so even though we share so much that when it gets personal is hard and I also find it difficult when bless and there's some particular uh I mean, it's not everyone in these, but again, there's some particular professional pathways that form you in ways that make it hard to self-reflect. And so sometimes it's just quite hard work because, you know, someone doesn't just not know what's sacred to them, but has never really 
has, is, has been so kind of focused on what they're doing or on other people. And academia does that a bit. Politics does that. Policy does that. It, they're brilliant callings to like be outward looking and tr- be trying to fix the world and make it a better place. But self-reflecting and having that sense of who you might not be fully objective. You might have some lenses. You might be bringing something of yourself to your work and it might be helpful to unpack that just doesn't always compute and then it's just a bit like reading through treacle have you ever developed any skills for trying to get that kind of stuff out of people so i've realized it takes time like the almost always the best bits of the sacred happen in the last 10 minutes so frustrating and because i sort of made a commitment early on not to edit them too much like if they're super long i'll cut out one or two really boring questions Mm. but i think one of the reasons people trust me and they say yes and they'll come talk about it is there's no sense in which i'm gonna mess about with the edit or I'm going to pull something out of context and so sometimes it's like I imagine for quite a few listeners there's a quite a bit of a drop off as people relax and then they're able to be personal and Mm. so part of me is thinking do I rework it so we ask some questions in a different order do I try and actually do a, a bit of time without recording and then get into it do I try and meet people beforehand but you're asking a lot of people's time anyway so um, so yeah, the best ones are almost always when I'm, it's with someone I know, who I'm friendly with, who they already trust me. There's already a rapport. They don't have their guard up because obviously I'm just trying to like get into people and dig out the stuff. <laughs> um, that's the little bit of journalist left in me. Um, has it ever made you question any of your own beliefs? Have you had anything that you've changed your mind over because of this podcast? I mean, I'm not someone whose beliefs are very fixed anyway. <laughs> uh, no, I mean that like. It's one of the, I think that's part of what doing that kind of job at the BBC does for you in a way that isn't that necessarily helpful in this kind of job. Like whoever I'm listening to, if they're smart and kind, I'm like, oh yeah, you must be right. Um, I I can usually see both sides of every argument. Like ask me on different days, and I will hold quite different beliefs on things. Not the deepest things, but on political things or theological things often I'm still working something out or I just am like that's above my pay grade I don't need to make a call on that Mm. like it doesn't it's not required of me to have a strong opinion on that thing um I there's some people who are invited on and again I won't say who slightly through gritted teeth for, for diversity or balance or whatever it is you know just because we hadn't had someone like that perspective and I knew I'd find you know, not because I was like, oh, that person sounds so fun to talk to. I'd love to talk to them, but more in like, I should talk to them. But the, the, the listening to someone with proper attention for 45 minutes, okay, it sounds cheesy, but I do think everyone's interesting. Like everyone is complicated and doing their best. And at least everyone who says yes, I mean, I'm sure that not everyone's doing their best or is thoughtful and kind. Um, <laughs> But, you know, there's something about, so I've, I, even if I start feeling a bit prickly and having to master that in myself, I'm not usually by the end, which is a really nice thing to discover. What have you learned about reaching across tribal divides by doing this podcast? Is there anything you can help me with as we all go through our individual struggles against our own tribal identity? Yeah. I mean, it's the stuff that everyone says that's really hard to do. Like, actually listen, stop, mm. don't. Don't be thinking of the thing that you want to say next. Like li- in that sort of almost like bog standard counseling way, listen and repeat something back to someone, reflect back to them, show them that you've heard them because that gains trust. Um, empathy, like try and think what they might be feeling and why. Um, 
And then I think, so the thing about when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, I never knew how to read it because it's, there's a quite a strong political context of a small nation under occupation. And the kind of reading around it indicates that it's basically, if a Roman soldier hits you in the face, don't be like the zealots who want to bring an uprising or like, I've forgotten their name, another sect who are like withdraw into the desert and completely disengage from political life. Like basically resist your fight and flight response to conflict. So do not hit them back and do not run away. Stay, like keep looking them in the eye. Turn the other cheek, which is very subversive because it's like, you're going to slap me with your backhand, are you? Like, do go, go again. It's very confident. It's very... It's very stand your groundy, like a confident, you're not attacking. And from that verse, you get the civil rights movement, you get Gandhi, you get so many nonviolent protest movements who, who stop cycles of violence by standing their ground, often in, in love and in empathy and understanding for their perpetrator. Like reading um, James Baldwin on white anxiety in the 60s is just heartbreaking because he understands, you know, and you're like, as a white person, I'm just grieved and humbled by his compassion for racists, in, of which I'm sure unconsciously I'm also one at times. Um, so when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, he's saying, don't fight back and don't run away. And so that's the thing I've learned. Like when I get defensive and prickly and like, wait for the cortisol to wear off. Like notice that that's fight or flight and wait for the cortisol to wear off and don't numb out and shut down and go sod you then. You're one of them. I'm not going to continue this conversation with you. You've said mm -hmm. something, you've said a view I don't agree with. You've used a word that we shouldn't use. You've revealed that you have a political position that I don't like. Okay, we're done. You know, close the door. But to stay curious and to stay in conversation and stay in relationship. And that that's the like habit bit. That's the thing you can learn. And the more you do it, the easier it gets. And you realize that it just completely changes. Like, there's a guy who I'm, I will have on eventually who completely went for me on Twitter. Some comment about atheists. It's very patronizing, sort of withering tirade about me as a, you're laughing as if you might, as a Christian leader. That was my other account. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks, Ian. Uh, and I was so, so angry. And I, ha I had to log myself out of Twitter because I could feel the cortisol. I could feel the adrenaline. I was like, I will take you down. And I spent four days cycling around London making these withering reports. You know, <laughs> how dare you mansplain my religion to me? How dare you? I'm oppressed, am I? Thank you, white middle-aged man, for explaining it to me. Uh, yes, I've read that. Yes, I know. The, you know, all of these, like, you're not clever enough. You've not read enough books, basically. was the, the mm. That's why you're religious. The, I... I didn't do those things because I had learned not to. And instead, once I'd managed to calm down, neither did I just ignore it or block him. I replied saying, basically, ouch, I can talk to you about why not all that's true. Like, would you like to come for dinner? And it's becoming a friend. Like, I really like the guy. We disagree so deeply, but I really like him. And I think he knows that he was a bit out of line. And so that skill of the natural reaction to conflict doesn't help us and so we train ourselves out of it and that's how we like manage to maintain democracy slash deal with people in our organization slash just keep friends with people who voted differently from us on the referendum mm. or whatever it is are you going to make dinner for everyone that trolls you online or are you going to restrict it to this one i mean one? it's not 
yeah, we make a lot of dinner. <laughs> Not even joking. Um, okay, so let's finish up. With, it's got it's got to be your sort of top three dream guests for yeah. the, the next two years. You see, I should. Yeah. Okay. I was going to say I should say people that I really dis, but then I, I try not to reveal, obviously, who it is that I disagree with going in. Um, I would love to interview. Um, I'd love to interview Marilyn Robinson because she's an, a hero, and there. See, this is just this is just my literary streak. I'd love to interview Wendell Berry, but he's in his eighties now. Um, so I don't know if. He'd do that. I mean, out the box, Liz. You don't have to think about practicalities. It's, dream. it's, it's a dream just, question. Yeah, exactly. It's a dream yeah. question. I would like to interview fly. Martin Luther King, uh, <laughs> Michelle Obama, um, and I would love to interview David Cameron. Not because political. I was not expecting that. No, no, because political leaders don't do this kind of stuff, and he's been so pivotal in what has happened in our country and the trajectory of the last few years and probably he wouldn't let his guard down but if you one he's got a real like yeah i just think political leaders leadership is hard the longer i lead a tiny tiny charitable organization the more i'm like leadership is hard and giving leaders space to reflect on what they were trying to do feels interesting to me Hmm. i look forward to listening to it (laughs) I'll just knock on the door of the shepherd's hut. <laughs> oh, Dave. What's your sacred value, Dave? I want to talk to you about God. Quite. <laughs> and regret. That'd be yeah. great. Oh, listen, man, I would totally listen. Um, thank you for letting me talk to you about your sacred values. Ian, thank you so much for uh, showing up and being great. Thank you for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Nate Bethay, and it is a project of the Think Tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, whether via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast, or me at Theos Elizabeth, or the sacred podcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast. We're also now available on Spotify, so it's even easier to take the sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk.